Amen. Well, good morning. Um, look at your neighbor and say, buckle up. All right, there's your introduction. Luke 17, open it. Yeah, kids. Buckle up over there. Now, now we can dial in. I'm going to read Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. This is Jesus teaching both the Pharisees and his disciples something crucial about the nature of the kingdom of God. This is what it says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see, see here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see there or see here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon, or for as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked him. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. This is the word of the Lord. If you're a note taker, designate yourself some space on your note page because we're going to sort of work through a little bit of a diagram as we do this this morning and you're probably going to want space to draw that. If you're not a note taker, we're going to draw a diagram. <laughs> but the reason for that is because this concept of the kingdom of God is something that we've been working on all throughout the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's impossible to understand what the Gospel writers are telling us about Jesus without understanding this key concept, that he is king of the kingdom. If we don't understand that, we don't fully understand the power of who Jesus is. We also don't fully understand exactly what it means to follow him and to live in submission to him. And this kingdom sort of teaching from Jesus really reaches a high point here at the end of Luke 17. I want to draw something out right at the beginning. Your translation, when we got down to verse 35, may have included a phrase that I did not read. Or your translation, when you get down to verse 35, mysteriously jumps to verse 37. Depends on what you're looking at there. Bible translation is a difficult task for a myriad of reasons. 
One of the positives in that process is that scholars have a multitude of ancient Greek and Hebrew manuscripts of the books of the Bible. In fact, they have more ancient manuscripts of those books by orders of magnitude than any other ancient work has available. And so sometimes those manuscripts have small differences in them. In those cases, Bible translation scholars take what's available out of all the manuscripts, and then they do their level best to try to figure out what was in the original and then translate from the original so that what you're holding is as close to what was originally written as is possible. In this case, some of those ancient manuscripts include verse 36. Some don't. Now, just to set your mind at ease, what's contained in verse 36, if you don't have it there, is a third illustration of what's in verse 35. And 34, I tell you on that night, two will be in one bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Verse 36, if you have it, says something to the effect of two men will be gathering in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. That's not removed because what Jesus said there doesn't fit with the rest of his teaching. It's not removed because it's so out of place that we need to hide it or something. In fact, that phrase, word for word, is included in the parallel passage in Matthew 24. It's not included in English translations because scholars aren't sure if Luke had it in the original manuscript. That's the reason you may not have there. It certainly represents congruent teaching. I just wanted to pull that out in case as we're working through this, you're saying, I don't have a verse 36, my Bible's defective. That's not true. But zoom back out. What we have before us this morning is Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching both in response to a direct question from the Pharisees, and he gives a very succinct answer, and he's teaching to his disciples who ask no question, but actually get the bulk of the teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God. Our landing point is going to be this, that the king has come and is in our presence, and that the king will come and take his people to be in his presence. You can substitute the word kingdom there. The kingdom has come and is in our presence. The kingdom will come, and when it does, its people will be taken to be in its presence. So verses 20 and 21, we're gonna clarify the king's presence among us now. Then verses 22 to 37, that's to the disciples, are all about the king's coming. And then we're going to sort of step back and ask the question, what does it mean for us to live in the king's kingdom today? Before we really jump into that, if you haven't been with us over the course of this series, um, I want to just sort of do a recap. If you have been with us, this is something you've heard us touch on multiple times. What are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the absolute rule and reign of God. When the Bible speaks of the kingdom... It's not talking about a place. It's not primarily talking about a people. It's talking about God's rule and God's reign over all things. That's all things physical and all things spiritual. And he's ruling and reigning in such a way that he's moving all of those physical and spiritual things toward the accomplishment of his purpose and his will. And he absolutely will do that effectively and perfectly. The phrase kingdom of God is used almost 50 times in the gospel of Luke. We can't understand the picture that we get in the Gospels without understanding the concept. We can't understand what it is to live as followers of Jesus without understanding that Jesus is king. 
that he rules and he reigns, that his power extends over all things, and that he rules and reigns in such a way as to achieve his sovereign, good, perfect plans. And then the second thing to understand, big picture within the kingdom of God, is that our role is simply submission. We submit as the people of God to the rule and the reign of God. He does not need our help in building the kingdom. It's always existed. His rule and his reign from all of eternity past, he doesn't need help building that. He doesn't need our help expanding the kingdom. He does that. Now he uses us in the process and it's a joy for us that he would choose sovereignly to do that. But he is the one expanding his kingdom and he does not need our help in hastening the kingdom's full and final arrival. The time for that is already marked out and only God knows when that is. We'll see that even this morning as we work through this passage. The kingdom of God is the absolute rule and reign of God over all things spiritual and physical, moving all things toward the sovereign accomplishment of his will. And our role as God's people in the kingdom of God is to submit to that rule and to that reign. So look at verses 20 and 21 again. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So Jesus' response to the Pharisees is that the king has come. And the kingdom is in your presence. It's in our presence. The Pharisees ask a good question. When will the kingdom of God arrive? But the asking of that question reveals a little bit of the Pharisees' misunderstanding. They're looking for the kingdom to come with a particular kind of king. They're looking for a king who will come in the image and the likeness of David. A king who will sit on a physical throne, rule geographically, command the military, shore up the borders for Israel's people, kick everyone else out, protect them. They're looking for someone who will rule in a political sense. They're looking for a human who will rise to power, sweep into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, protect the Israelite people from their enemies, restore the people back to their momentary glory and prosperity like they had it under David. That's what they're waiting for. And Jesus says, the kingdom's not gonna come with something observable like that, where you could say, look here or look there. There's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus says. Let's do a little drawing. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm not an artist, I'm a pastor. Keep that in mind. But what we have from Jesus is a picture of time. That line represents time. Now let's just, for the sake of argument, put Genesis here and let's put Malachi here. This is the Old Testament. And in this entire window, what you have is the Old Testament telling you that the kingdom, the king, is coming. It's promised. The entire Old Testament is one continual proclamation that the king is coming and he will fulfill what God said would happen in Genesis chapter three. What will the king come and do? Crush the head of the serpent. 
that person's coming, that person's coming. And the Old Testament is just a continual picture of the struggle that God's people have living under the rule and the reign of Yahweh, their God. All of the darkness and the brokenness and the sin that takes place in the Old Testament is a picture of how hard it is for humanity to submit to the rule and the reign of God, despite very clear instructions from God in the law of what it would look like to do that. The Israelite people struggle, and all along in their struggle, someone's coming, someone's coming, someone's coming. God sends them prophets who talk about this son of man who is going to come on the day of the Lord, and when he comes, his kingdom will come. So the Old Testament is looking forward to that. And now Jesus says, the kingdom is in your midst, which to the Pharisees is like a mind-blowing idea. What do you mean it's in our midst? Well, Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come. And I'm just gonna put a cross right here because when Jesus is saying that, he's talking about the whole sort of Jesus event of his life. And so if you're working with where we are in the Bible, this would be the gospels. The king has come. Now it's not just the Pharisees who get wrong exactly what it is that they're looking for. Luke, you can go back to the slides. When Jesus announces that he has come in his ministry, oh, my bad. There's what my notes look like. If you read ahead, you know what's coming. When Jesus announces his ministry in Luke chapter four, and he says, he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says, this is what is going to happen. The blind will have their sight restored. The gospel will be, will be preached to the poor. This, the sick will be healed. And then he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's announcing himself as king. No one likes it. What do they try to do? Throw him off of a cliff. They're looking for something different. Not some poor man, son of a carpenter, living in Nazareth. That's not what the people think the king is going to be. And so they get angry. When John the Baptist is sitting in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, look, are you or are you not the king who is to come? Jesus sends his disciples back and says, tell John what you have seen. The sick are healed. The blind receive sight. The gospel is preached to the poor. I am the king. John the Baptist can't figure out, is this the guy we're waiting for? Or is he not? And even Jesus' disciples, when he gets arrested in the garden, Judas walks up, kisses Jesus. The authorities move in to arrest him. What does one of the disciples do? Grabs a sword, takes a swipe at one of the officials that's there. Why? Well, because we've had enough, Jesus. Now's the time that we ride into glory. Like it's time for us to rise up. We're looking for a king who's going to sit on a throne, kick Rome out of here and rule his people. But that's not what Jesus has come to do. He says, no, the kingdom is in your midst. I am the king. His ministry is such that as he's going about doing the work of his ministry, it is a picture of the fact that the rule and the reign of God is broken in to a sinful, broken world. It's overcoming the effects of the fall, restoring people who are sick, literally raising the dead, overturning the very worst of what sin can do. 
Jesus the King is broken into the world. He's demonstrating himself to have absolute rule and reign over everything. And he says to the Pharisees, you don't need someone to come and tell you where to look. The King is here. He's in your midst right now. They've been looking for the wrong thing. But it's right there. The absolute rule and reign of God has literally been on display in front of them and among them. And so Jesus gives them a very quick answer, but it's not harsh. It's meant to be clarifying. Don't look anywhere else. Then he turns to the disciples. And he says, starting in verse 22, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see here or see there. Don't follow or run after them. For as lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he gives them more instruction, but it seems oddly contradictory. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, the kingdom is in your midst. Jesus looks at the disciples and said, one day the king will come. Wait a second. Help us, Jesus. What are you talking about exactly? So the king has come and the kingdom of God is in our presence. But then Jesus also says the king will come and take his people to be in his presence. All of the son of man language that Jesus uses in the second part of this teaching is a pickup from the Old Testament where they talk about the son of man who will come in the day of the Lord that will come. So Jesus gives his disciples four certainties about that day. Just walk through them really quickly. The king's coming will be unmistakable. That's verses 22 to 24. It'll be like lightning on the horizon that lights up the sky. Jump down to verse 37. Where, Lord, they asked him. And he said, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Right? Like when there's a dead body and vultures circling, it's hard to miss. When there's lightning in the sky, it's hard to miss. It will be unmistakable. You won't need someone to point it out. You won't need someone to sort of read the tea leaves and explain to you that the kingdom of God has come. It will be unmistakable. Then there's a second piece, that the king's future glory is linked to his past suffering. Verse 25, first it is necessary that he, the son of man, the king, suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is telling the disciples that the moment for his coming in glory is not the moment that's in front of them because he has predicted numerous times that the son of man will be betrayed, he will be killed, he will rise on the third day. That suffering has to happen. The road to glory is through suffering. That's true for Jesus and it's true for his followers. You cannot understand or arrive at the second without the first. No glory without suffering. Jesus says. Then verses 26 to 30. The king's coming will be unexpected 
and without warning. This is about the whole thing about Noah and Lot. When the king comes again, it will be similar to how it was in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, we were told that wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. That's Genesis 6-5. When we think about Noah and the flood, we think about the sin that was running rampant. But notice what Jesus draws out. Not the sin, just the sort of everyday activity of eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. It'll be like that. And then the Son of Man will come. It'll be unmistakable. You won't need a reporter on the scene who says, like in the days of Noah, uh, seems like it's been raining for a while, guys. Or it'll be like the days of Lot. Again, when we think of Lot and what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, we think primarily of the sin. In fact, we're told in Genesis 18, 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. Then in chapter 19, there's the destruction. Judgment comes. But again, Jesus points out not the immense amount of sin. He points out just the mundanity of life that's going on. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. That's what was happening in the days of Lot. And then judgment came. And they didn't need someone to say, hey, everybody, we've got brimstone. Or like, it was obvious. It was unmistakable. And Jesus is saying, it will be the same. Will sin be present all across the earth? Absolutely. But there will also just be the mundanity of everyday life. We'll be going about our business, buying, selling, eating, drinking, marrying, planting, building. And the king's coming will be unexpected and without warning, and it will happen in a flash that will be unmistakable. Now, the parallel passage in Matthew 24 gives some general warning signs for what will take place before the Son of Man comes back in glory. Go back to, Gen- to Matthew 24. You can read the list. Those things are happening all the time. There will be an intensifying of those, and it's common for people to look at world happenings and say, are we in the end times or not? It's a fair question, but Jesus says, You won't need someone to point it out. Like, it will be globally unmistakable, not from one particular country's vantage point, but across the globe. There will be no doubt, it seems like things are coming to an end. Everyone will know it. And then last, the king's coming separates humanity to either glory or judgment. Verses 34 and 35. On that night, two will be in one bed, One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Sheep and goats, wheat and chaff, good trees and bad. Two that slept together, one goes to be with Jesus. Two grinding grain, one goes to be with Jesus. So the king is present, Jesus says to the Pharisees. Then he looks at the disciples and he says, the king will come. Okay, so let's go back to our drawing. So we also get this picture that the king will come a second time. Now it's important to note back here in the first coming, 
Jesus is king, but that's a crown of thorns. These are thorns. You can draw better thorns if you want. But he also makes clear that the king will come a second time. And when he does come a second time, it will, that second coming will be in glory. There won't be any like wondering about what's going on. That's a crown. You can tell because of the jewels. He will come in glory. And so the king has come and the king will come. But the second time the king comes, he's gonna take his people to be with him. So what's going on in the gap? That's the immediate question. What in the world is happening between those two times? And what's with the judgment language? Like oftentimes people picture Jesus in the New Testament as being all about love and all about grace. Well, actually, Jesus talks as much about the reality of judgment and the reality of hell as any other portion of scripture. And in Jesus's life, the picture of judgment is as harsh as in any other place. It just falls all on one person, him. And he will come back. And when he does, he says, there will be judgment. That's true all throughout scripture. Think about Noah, preaches for years while he's building this ark. The judgment is coming, a flood is coming. Nobody believes him. Think about the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham interacts with this angel of the Lord and says, what if there are 50 righteous people there? Would you spare the city? I would. What about 45? I would. How about 40, 30, 20? What if there are 10? And God is gracious. And God right now is being gracious and holding open this window of time so that people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue might be swept into the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. That's the great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What is the purpose and the will that God is ruling and reigning all things spiritual and physical toward accomplishing? A global people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And in this gap, he's holding the window open graciously and kindly. Luke, you can go back. I won't flip this time until you do. Now we got it. So the king has come and he's in our presence. And he will come and take his people to be in his presence. And the point of all of this to disciples is that the second day isn't here yet. The king has come, he's among you, Jesus says. The king will come and when he does, it will be unmistakable. His first kingdom or his first coming is with suffering and humility. His second will be with glory and power. What does that mean for us? Well, look at verses 31 to 33. On that day, when the king comes in glory, a man on the housetops uh, whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, exclamation point. The point for followers of Jesus today is that followers of Jesus live between the king's first and second coming with a singular devotion to his rule and reign. It's important to note here, we don't live in one 
time or the other. We live in both of them. The king and his kingdom are in our midst with all of its power and authority and glory and splendor. And yet the king and his kingdom will come in the future with the fullness of his power, glory, splendor, and authority. And we live in this age with an eye toward the future. Maybe the best way to try to sort of smash all of that together is to think about when you were in college or if you've had kids recently who went off to college. They lived in your house for 18 years. You lived in your parents' house for 18 years. You went off to college. You were there for like two weeks. You came home for the weekend. You hung out with some of your high school friends. And as you were leaving the house, you said, Mom, Dad, I'll be back later. And Mom said, what time will you be home? Well, you were an 18-year-old adult. And you said, what do you mean, what time will I be home? I haven't had to tell anybody when I'm going to be home for two whole weeks, Mom. I'm an adult. And your mom or your dad said, so long as you live in this house, you live under these rules. And until you're paying for your car insurance and your cell phone and your health insurance and your own rent. And there was this weird period of time while you were in college and maybe after you graduated from college and you came back home where you were an adult and yet you weren't an adult yet. The overlap of these kingdoms is similar to that. John Piper says that the kingdom has come with all of its power and with all of its glory and with all of its splendor, and yet it will come. And so today we have the first fruits of that. There is miraculous healing that comes from the Lord, and yet we still get sick. We will absolutely be raised from the dead one day, and yet we still die. And when the king comes again in all of his glory, those rumblings and effects of the fall will completely be gone. But we live in both times. And God wills for us to come into the fullness of his power and his glory and his splendor slowly. But when he comes back, it'll be instantly. That's the picture. When the king comes unexpectedly in glory without warning to collect his people to himself, the warning that Jesus gives is that some will want to go back and clutch on to the things of the world. Remember Lot's wife. There'll be a man on a housetop who in this moment comes, wants to run down and grab his belongings. And bear in mind, Jesus says this not to the Pharisees anymore. He's talking to the disciples. Like he's looking at the 12 and he's saying, this will be the reality for some people. And the implication is that those who look, there are those who look like they're following Jesus, but when push comes to shove, the reality of their heart is going to display itself. What our heart clung to is going to be revealed. To use language from last week, in that moment, there will be those who turn to face something other than Jesus, who want to return to something other than Jesus. Lot's wife wanted to go back to her home, to her stuff. The man on the rooftop wants to go back for his belongings. Jesus is saying that such will be true for some who appeared to be his disciples. And the reality of the picture of the kingdom of God is that you will not enter the kingdom of God with your arms wrapped around the things of the world. We live today in both ages, in between the king's first and second coming. 
The kingdom and the king have come, and yet they will come. And what does it look like to live faithfully as followers of Jesus in that time? Go back to our drawing one more time. There's a reason why I stopped this early. Because the picture that we get is that this age will pass away when the king comes again. And there's this new age that has begun when the king first came. But after this world passes away, no more overlap. It's only the king reigning in glory. And in the middle here, not an artist, you know this is a church because there's a cross on top. (laughs) Jesus will come again. That's revelation. We see that happen. But we live in this period here, which is Acts through today. And if the kingdom was promised in the Old Testament, it was inaugurated when Jesus came and lived and died and delivered the fatal blow to Satan. It will be consummated when he comes again. Oh boy, I'm gonna run out of room. Consummated. And right now the kingdom is advancing. It's advancing as the people of God do what? Submit to his rule and reign. As the people of God submit to that in all of its facets, the kingdom advances. As the people of God allow the rule and the reign of God to work in them and through them, a broken world sees the kingdom advance. And all of that will take place until the king comes back and consummates his kingdom fully and finally. So the question is, how do we live here and now? What does it look like to be the people of the kingdom who live in submission to the king? I want to give a few sort of pastoral applications for what that looks like. Luke, you can pull that down. Practically, What does it mean to live as followers of Jesus between the king's first and second coming with a singular devotion to his rule and reign? Number one, we don't hold on to anything of this world as most supreme. Not your marriage or your singleness, not your talents or your gifts, not your children or your grandchildren, not your job or your money, not your comforts, or your health, not your hobbies, or your passions, or your interests, not your political convictions, or your preferences within this country, or your image of what America should be, and, just a side note, that would be true for a follower of Jesus in any other country, not just this one. You don't hold on as most supreme to your hopes, or your dreams, or your desires. And when push comes to shove on those things, you turn to Jesus, not to those. There's a balance there. We are to recognize that all of those things are wonderful blessings, marriage, singleness, talents, gifts, children, grandchildren, career, money, comfort, health, hobbies, 
passions, the freedoms that we have in this country, our hopes, our dreams. Those are wonderful gifts from the Lord and we are to steward them in light of the kingdom for the good of the kingdom in submission to the king. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it is to live in this age, but not be of it. We do live in the here and now. We submit to a different king and a different kingdom than the rest of the world would want us to submit to. And the world will give us a lot of kings that we could bow down to. We reject them all. And we say there's only one. And any of this other stuff that the world would have me bow down to, I can recognize it as the good that it is. I can rejoice in the good that it is. I can cherish the good that it is in submission to the king and for the sake of the kingdom. It's not wrong to pursue those things so long as we pursue them in a way that's subordinate to the king. When we became followers of Jesus, we submitted everything to him. We put everything else in the back seat. We placed it all under the rule of the king. And we will not enter the kingdom with our hearts and arms wrapped around the things of this world. We will only do so with our hearts and arms wrapped around the king. And you say, Tim, that sounds extreme. And I would say, it's literally the exact words of Jesus. There's a cost. And before coming into the kingdom, Jesus says, you should count it. You're gonna pick up your cross every day and follow him. And sometimes that means crucifying your fleshly desire for the other kings of this world so that you might be able to genuinely lift them up in joyful submission to the rule and reign of the king. Number two, we submit to the realities of the king's rule and reign. And there are two errors that we can make in this. The first is that we can make submission to the king all about an individual internal thing. Yes, submitting to the king's rule and reign transforms us as people. The fruit of the spirit come to life within us. The Sermon on the Mount takes root. The imperatives of scripture as it relates to our attitudes and dispositions come to life in us as sin is brought to light and is sanctified within us. And it is the gracious power of the spirit that does this. It does so in us in light of the gospel and the good news that the power of sin has been broken by the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. And when our hearts rebel, we look to the spirit to empower submission inside of us. And that looks like confession, lament, repentance, turning and returning to the king, knowing that he is gracious and merciful. The other error in this is to make submission to the realities of the kingdom only an external, collective thing. We can't turn the rule and the reign of the king and his power and his kingdom into an entirely private matter, but we also can't turn it into an exclusively external matter. It has to be both. The picture that scripture paints for us in the ministry of Jesus in the gospels and the work of the Acts, or of the apostles in Acts, in the epistles written by Paul and James and John, is that there is an external collective reality to the rule and the reign of God as the people of God submit and he works through them. 
It's the will of God that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his people. Now that entails supremely the carrying of the gospel to the ends of the earth, but it also includes the tangible outworkings of the just, kind, good, and gracious rule and reign of God in response to the brokenness, injustice, and evils in this world. And the external collective reality is why Christians throughout history have been motivated to work for the good of all people, a good that is defined by the righteous and holy rule of the king. And when we err collectively, we plead for the spirit to move us to submission. And sometimes that means that we need to collectively confess, lament, and repent, knowing that the king is gracious and merciful. The rule and the reign of the king and the life of the king's people is internal. It takes place within us. It's also external as the king moves through his people to fulfill his purposes to the ends of the earth. Number three, we rejoice humbly as we're used in the expansion of the kingdom. The king's people rejoice when the rule and the reign of the king displays itself in our broken world. We rejoice when the rule and the reign of the king expands inside of us. We rejoice when the rule and the reign of the king grows among us. We rejoice when the rule and the reign of the king breaks into another person's life. We rejoice when the rule and the reign of the king displays itself over the evils of a broken world. If we are people who are solely devoted to the king, then when the king displays himself as king, it brings us to rejoicing and to worship. That's why a couple weeks ago, we celebrated the movement of the king to the nations through this church. That moves us to celebration. That's why we celebrate and rejoice when someone wants to be baptized because that's the movement of God. That's why our small groups rejoice as the power of the king displays itself over the realities of sin and brokenness within the lives of our people. And in small group, you get to see that up close, rubbing shoulders with one another, the nitty gritty of brokenness and then seeing the king move within people. We rejoice at that. The rest of the world, yawn. The people of God, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. That's how the people of God respond to the work of God. And then last, because Jesus brings it out, it's worth noting that we allow suffering to refine and prepare our hearts for glory. The path of the king was suffering and then glory. The path of the king's people is suffering, and then glory. Daily life in a broken world is a life of suffering. Sometimes that's more poignant than others. The breaking down of our bodies refines and prepares us for glory. The hurts and pains of relational challenges refine and prepare us for glory. The sin of others infringing upon us refines and prepares us for glory. And one day, the king will come back to collect his people and the sufferings of this world will have prepared us to not look back, but only to look forward. Because why would I look back and long for the things that ever only hurt me? Yes, great blessings. Yes, things that we can love. Yes, things that we can appreciate but ultimately they would fail. And if I've lived in this world 
as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, all of the ways those things have failed me produced a hope and a longing for me for when the king would come and put all of those things in the past and bring only that which is of his glory and only that which is of his good and only that which displays unhindered his rule and his reign. And I could spit the bitter taste of this stuff out and wait longingly for the sweetness of what was to come. And when he comes again, I'm not going back for any of that. As good as it was, it could only ever let me down. And the dimmest view of what is to come can only ever exceed all of my wildest expectations. And so we live in this age with an eye toward that one. And all of the sufferings and the pain of this age prepare us for the glory of the one to come. They prepare us to not turn to something else, but to turn only to Jesus. And in that, we will be ready for glory. And so oftentimes here, we sing songs about the king. We're gonna sing a couple of them this morning. And when we do so, we're singing truth to ourselves. And sometimes, like Kurt said on a Sunday morning, we need to come together and we just need to hear other people seeing the truth of the goodness of the king because we're in the middle of the suffering and the pain and it's hard for us to grasp. Sometimes we come in and we're so excited and we're longing so hard for the king to come that it's easy to sing those things. But what it ought to do inside of us is build a reminder for our hearts that there's only one and that the world would want us to recognize others But we're a people who understand that the kingdom of God is in our midst, that he is ruling and reigning right now, and yet he will also come again. And when he does, none of the brokenness that marks this age will ever be present again. And so we sing. We sing to the king about our devotion to the king, about our longing for the king, about our desire for him to build your kingdom here. Why? So that the darkness would fear. So that he would show his mighty hand that we as the people of God would rejoice in the work of the God. So that we as people of the kingdom would celebrate the coming of the kingdom. So that we as the people of the kingdom would long for the king. That's why we sing about the glory and the goodness of the king. And so we're gonna spend a little bit of time doing that together. And my prayer, pastorally, is that when we sing about the king, we would mean it. It wouldn't just be words on a screen, but it would be cries of our hearts. Because as the people of the kingdom, we long for the king. We rejoice in the work of the king. We celebrate the beauty of the king. And we look expectantly for the return of the king. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.